Hello church, this is the Murray family coming to you with the verse of the week. Uh, I am Mort Murray and my wife Anna Murray. So we are reading for you today Mark 10 verses 17 through 32. I'll do 17 through 22 and Anna will finish the rest. Um, so starting at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. <clears throat> Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Amen. With God, all things are possible. Thank you, church. Awesome. Thank you so much, Murray family. Uh, they're not able to be here with us in person today. Uh, they're out um, I think have some family stuff that they're doing, so, uh, but it was great to see them. And it's great to see all of you. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. All right. I'm Marshall. I'm one of the leaders here, and um, uh, it's my joy to be able to open up God's Word with you. Before we dive in, I wanted to say, wasn't worship just like so good this morning? Holy cow. I have the best seat in the house because I have sort of like the wave of dripping anointing from the front. And then right behind me, I've got Tori singing over my shoulder and I've got all of you singing. I'm just like enveloped in the glory whenever I'm worshiping. So if you wanna be enveloped in the glory, there's frankly lots of room up front, come on up. Um, for the last few weeks, we have been in a series we're calling Love Your Neighbor. And what we're doing during the fall is we are examining the life of Jesus to see how he lived out what he claimed to be the greatest commandment, which is to love God with everything, to love him with your whole heart, soul, mind, strength, your body, everything you've got, um, and then to sort of let that, that overflow into your love for other people, for your neighbor. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what we're doing during the fall is we're going through the gospels and we're looking at different stories to see how it is that Jesus loves different kind of people. And today we are in a familiar story of a rich young man. 
We live in a time of history where everyone seems to be looking for the good life. And that is unique to our era of history. It hasn't always been this way. Uh, the idea of looking for the aesthetic, the beautiful, the good life was, for most of human history, reserved only for the most privileged. And yet, here we are today where every single one of us not only wants to have our physical needs met, shelter, food, and stuff like that, but that we have an expectation and a hope that we could live a life that is meaningful, that is beautiful, that is worthwhile. And, and as we are trying to find this good life, we are constantly barraged with narratives from our culture of what this good life looks like. And it's, 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 it's hundreds of different types of the good life. It could be financial success. It could be hashtag van life. It could be a life of experiences and travel, or it could be things like stability, or the good life may be um, like a really healthy marriage and family, or the good life may be presented to you as giving your life for a worthy cause, and hundreds of other things. And the thing about having so many options and being presented with so many narratives is that for us, uh, how paralyzing it can be to have to define your own meaning for yourself. How can you possibly know what is the right thing to aim for so that you do not end up with regret on the other side of this life? Philosopher William Irvine says it like this, there is a danger that you will mislive, that despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. I think that this quote, it touches something that is at the core of every single one of us. It is possible to mislive. It's a real possibility that you could waste your life and completely miss the point, the purpose of the span of years that God has given to you. And so here we are in Mark chapter 10, and we are looking at this familiar story about a rich young man who comes to Jesus with this very question on his mind. In verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we look at this verse, the, the phrase that we want to key in on is the phrase eternal life. Now, for you and me, being 21st century Americans um, who may or may not have any experience with the church, uh, the, the, the phrase eternal life has a very specific meaning in our minds. And it's basically this. It's that when you die, you get to go to heaven if you have eternal life. Eternal life is defined as a celestial existence after death. But that is actually a foreign interpretation uh, for a first century Jew. N.T. Wright, uh, in his commentary, uh, says this. That this man, he simply wasn't asking, he wasn't simply asking about how to go to heaven when he died. As we've seen often enough, the phrase kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that. 
It means God's sovereign, saving rule coming to transform everything, coming to bring the whole creation into a new state of being, a new life in which evil, decay, and death itself will be done away. Many, perhaps, or many, perhaps most, Jews of Jesus' day believed that Israel's God would do this and would do it very soon. The question they were asking in several different ways was who would benefit from it when it happened? Who would inherit the age to come? Who would gain the life of the new age? This young man, he didn't come asking Jesus, how do I get into heaven? He came asking Jesus, how do I live in such a way where I am sort of enveloped or part of this kingdom that you keep preaching and teaching about? And this was actually a common question in first century Israel. It wasn't unfamiliar. In first century Israel, what would typically follow from this question is a discussion about how to interpret the Torah, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, the law. And different teachers of that day would then have different takes. And so this young man was coming to find out what is Jesus' take. He's a successful young guy who is driven to do the right thing, who always wants to be an achiever. And he comes to Jesus to see what kind of wisdom this teacher might have for him. And before we read Jesus' response to that question, I want you to pause and just for a moment consider how would you answer this question if you were Jesus? What would be your response to somebody coming to you and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Take 10 seconds, think about it for just, just a moment. You got it? Here's what Jesus said, just to check and see if you were right. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. And you shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. What a fascinating exchange we see right here. And it's fascinating because in this conversation, Jesus sort of breaks down everything that we as American Christians think the right answer to this young man's question should be. If this young man had come and asked you the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We would have assumed that the answer would have been something a little bit more like this. What must I do to inherit life, Marshall? Do? You can't do anything. You can't do anything to be saved. That would be a works-based salvation. Don't you realize that salvation and, and the kingdom of God is all about grace? It is a gift that you can only receive. Only the sinless son of God can give you this gift through his death on a cross. So why don't you just stand back and let Jesus handle it, and then you can put your faith in him, and he's got it covered. So if you would like to receive this gift, go ahead and close your eyes, put up your hand, and repeat after me this following prayer. Doesn't that feel like a little bit more familiar of the answer to the question that this young man asked? Am I alone in that? 
But Jesus isn't answering the question that we think he is. Jesus isn't answering a question of how to get to heaven or how to have his sins resolved. He's answering the man's questions about how to live a life that is aligned with the kingdom. And Jesus points him back to the Old Testament law. He says, if you want to live in line with God's kingdom, you need to follow the law that God gave us. And note that all of the laws, all of the commandments that Jesus lists right here are commandments um, that that relate, how we relate to other people. These are, Jesus' paradigm for kingdom life is not merely a privatized faith or personal inner peace, but that Jesus' understanding of what the kingdom of God looks like in your life and mine is that it had to be worked out through action towards other people. And so Jesus, he actually answers this man's question in the standard fare of his day. Follow the Torah. You want eternal life? Follow the Torah. But this young man's ambition pushes him farther. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Teacher, follow the Torah? I've been, doing, I've been nailing that for years. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Key phrase. Jesus looked at this man and loved him and says this. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked at him and loved him. That is the sentence in this story that unlocks everything, and it it is the interpretive key for what is happening here. And so as we are considering how Jesus loves his neighbor, this story, I think, breaks down our categories. Because for the first time, we see that the way that Jesus loves somebody results in a man's sadness and sorrow. How can the love of Jesus extended toward this young man result in him walking away depressed? How can the gospel, which literally means good news, be bad news for this young man? In this exchange, Jesus is upending the young man's entire worldview, his understanding about how the world and how the kingdom of God works. And Because you see, this man actually came with a question about the boundaries. What do I have to do to be within the boundaries of God's kingdom? But Jesus isn't interested in boundaries. Jesus is trying to reveal that what it's really all about is what is at the center of his heart. During Jesus' ministry, he was ruthless in his commitment to not just address people's behavior, but even more so to confront people's hearts that were oriented in the wrong direction. And so here in the vineyard, we have a paradigm for this. We talk about what we call a bounded set model versus a centered set model and thinking about discipleship to Jesus. It's, it's a way of, of sort of moving from an insider-outsider way of thinking into an orientation of life way of thinking. If you've been around for a while, no doubt you've heard this by now, but we're going to keep hammering at home. This is such a valuable way of understanding the, the life and teachings of Jesus. Now, in a bounded set model, if we could put up the next slide, a bounded set model, you determine whether someone or something is inside or outside by carefully defining the boundary. 
So in a salvation sense, you are trying to define what are the requirements to pass from being an outsider to becoming an insider? What is the threshold that you have to cross to be securely on the inside of God's kingdom? And, and that is actually still a very helpful way of thinking about it because we do believe in, in justification. We do believe in um, regeneration, the idea that, that when you put your faith in Jesus, you are made into a new creation. That does matter. But Jesus never really came preaching about the boundary. You see, in a bounded set, membership is, in, is, is very clear. It's easily defined. You're either in or you're out. So you've either said the correct prayer or you've been baptized or you have the right core beliefs or you practice the right behaviors. And anyone who hasn't done the correct ritual or believed the right belief is defined then as not a Christian. Membership in a bounded set is static. It's either or. Another way to look at salvation is the next slide, what we call a centered set model. And a centered set model means that people are defined by their orientation towards the center, that what matters most is movement. It's dynamic. It's not static. And a centered set model describes a life of discipleship. It's about orienting all of life according to what's at the center rather than the boundaries. Centered set theology, it's not subjective. It's not relativism or vague or loose theology. It's simply defined in relationship to what's at the center rather than what's at the boundary. Am I making sense? You guys following me? And so if we define Christianity as a bounded set, we will only focus on what is the boundary. And humans historically, are terrible at defining boundaries. Um, we, 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 like, either uh, go, like, resort into extreme legalism where we really define who's inside and who's outside, and, and we have purity tests, and we cancel everybody who doesn't adhere to our specific way of thinking or viewing things, or we just sort of cast off the boundaries, and we just say, like, whatever, it doesn't matter. You be you, as long as you don't hurt anybody. And neither of those things are the way of Jesus. See, Jesus came and he was always coming and aggressively rebuking those who were sort of religious leaders of his day because he could see what others couldn't see. Though they felt like they were total insiders, Jesus could see their heart, their heart's orientation was actually skewed away from the, what was at the center of God. And so over and over again, religious leaders, they accused Jesus of hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. He was hobnobbing with sinners. And I don't believe that Jesus was for a moment casual towards sin. But Jesus' mission wasn't to try to get people over the line to be insiders. Jesus' entire mission was to reorient people's lives towards the kingdom of God. It was about introducing them to an entire new way of living. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing right here in this exchange with this wealthy young man. He's trying to reorient this guy's life to a new center. He is revealing what is taking up space, what is occupying the throne of this young man's heart. And he's inviting him to dethrone wealth and personal success and to enthrone Jesus as his Lord. As human beings, we are not static. You are not just sort of like seal the deal good, just camp out until you die. That the point of the Christian life is to be ever moving more and more and more into holiness, in walking in the kingdom of God, knowing Jesus more personally, more intimately. We are always moving. We are all 
becoming something. In his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this, the world does not consist of 100% Christians and 100% non-Christians. There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians, but who still call themselves by that name. Some of them are clergymen. (laughs) There are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. They are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. The question is not, are you inside or outside? The question for us at all times, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, should always be, am I moving towards the center? Am I moving towards the center? And this young man, the question that, that is sort of, that is being asked here is, who is he becoming based on what is occupying the center of his heart? And in asking these questions, all of this is an act of love. This is how Jesus is loving this rich young man, by alerting him to the way that he is misliving and inviting him to come and find true life as his disciple. And sadly, this young man ends up walking away unchanged, literally heartbroken because of the way that wealth has a hold on his heart. It's too much to give up. And this is extraordinary. He was actually invited to be like the 13th disciple of Jesus. He was invited to be part of the crew, and he turned it down. How utterly tragic. And so if this man is coming to Jesus asking the question, what do I need to be saved? What do I need to be within the boundaries? What he is really asking is whether or not he can bring all of his stuff along with him to be an insider. What can he bring along inside? How can I keep everything I want and still be in the kingdom? And here's the thing. Whatever it is that you are hoping to hold on to and still be in the kingdom is likely the very thing that occupies the center of your heart that sits on the throne. Whatever it is that we are reluctant to surrender for the sake of eternal life is the thing that we are likely living toward. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said it again. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Selah. Here is one of those really hard teachings from Jesus. And as affluent American Christians... We do really weird things to this text to avoid being implicated by Jesus' words. So if, you, if you've heard this, this passage preached, no doubt you've heard some version of like, well, the eye of a needle was not really the eye of a needle. It was actually this gate. It was a door in the city of Jerusalem. And it was very small. It was meant only for people, probably very small people, to be honest. And a camel, in order to get through that, would probably have to like army crawl, and it would be very, very difficult for a camel to get through it, except that there's, like, no historical precedent for that to be true. Like, it's just not true. Um, and so then, then we, you know, we, we interpret the text and say, well, like, well, 
you know, this rich young man, wealth had a really outsized sort of hold on his heart. And Jesus needed to confront that for him. But Jesus would never say that to me because money's not my idol. Like, no way. Like, that's just that guy. But in any case, Jesus could not have, certainly could not have meant what he said in verse 25. Except maybe he does. Except maybe this, is, this means exactly what it sounds like. How difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. You see, the allure of wealth and comfort are enemies to our life with God. The Bible describes over and over again the danger to our souls that possessions and comfort sort of threaten us with. And, and, and this can be for so many reasons. For many people, wealth is connected to things like status or comfort or feeling of a version of personal success or it could be about creature comforts or it could be about image or it could be about security and having enough for the future. But throughout the Gospels, we see that the way of Jesus consistently resists all of those things. The way of Jesus calls us to die to our status, to our comfort, to our success, to our image, and even to security. Jesus calls us to the way of the cross, just as he did to this rich young man. His invitation this morning is actually a very sober one for us to examine what is at the center of our hearts. Is Jesus sitting on the throne or something else? And as the richest people to have ever lived on earth, to have more creature comforts than kings of former centuries, I think that we would do ourselves a disservice to immediately write off Jesus' words as just for some other guy that he had a conversation with. Jesus elsewhere says that we cannot serve two masters. Speaking of money, you cannot serve both God and money at the same time. He says you cannot have it both ways, that this kingdom can only have one king, and he will not share you with anything else. He is a jealous, jealous lover. And the thing is, I think that this young man, upon hearing this very sober invitation, it cut to a very painful place in his heart and caused him to miss the heart of Jesus' invitation. He got hung up on the wrong part. Jesus' invitation was not just, go sell everything you have if you want to be righteous. The real invitation from Jesus in this text is, come follow me. I don't believe that Jesus was saying that in order to earn a place on my team, you have to fulfill a certain amount of requirements. You have to renounce a certain amount of wealth in order to qualify. Because for, for most of Jesus' disciples, what we see is that we, we come in with a very weak and sincere yes in our souls, and then we live out a life of progressively dying to ourselves. It's a process but Jesus wants to warn us from the outset that it will end up costing us everything to follow him. You see, this man didn't have the faith in Jesus to appreciate what he was walking away from. If only he knew, um, if only he knew what he could have had, he would have given up 
everything to be a disciple, but he was blinded by the he was blinded to the reality of who Jesus was right in front of him. Consider the difference between this passage and last Sunday's story um, that we that we read last week about um, oh, a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. He was one of the most hated men in the entire region. He was infamous. Everybody despised this man Zacchaeus. And Jesus, seeing Zacchaeus in a tree, acknowledging him and honoring him as a brother, that in that moment, Zacchaeus is instantly transformed. And what does he do as a result of this transformation? He immediately says, I'm going to sell my possessions. I'm going to um, uh, uh, bring like restitution to everyone that I have defrauded. I'm going to give my proceeds to the poor, and I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. And then consider the story of the disciples as well. Look with me at verse 28. Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. We see that with each time that Jesus came and called one of those disciples, said, come follow me, the same invitation that this rich young man was given, they dropped everything. They just left their nets and they followed Jesus. They left behind businesses. They left behind stable family systems everything that they put their trust in so that they could follow Jesus. And you can see the difference between Zacchaeus and the disciples versus this rich man. You see the response of the disciples and Zacchaeus when they were called by Jesus was to call him Lord. Zacchaeus immediately said, Lord, I'm going to sell all my stuff. I'm going to follow you. I'm all in. But for this rich young man, he never recognizes Jesus as anything other than a good teacher. Jesus was never this man's Lord. He was never his master. So because you cannot serve two masters, this man went with the only master that he knew. His wealth, his ambition, his self-righteousness. How did Jesus love this young man? By sharing the gospel with him and inviting him to experience true and abundant life in the kingdom of God. And just like us, sometimes even Jesus is rejected. But if this man had decided that he would follow Jesus, if he would have sold everything, if he would have like, renounced all that he had thought was gain at one time, he would have discovered that he has everything that he needs in following Jesus. He would have found that in losing everything, he gains everything. Verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first. That when you drop everything and you follow Jesus, you experience the joy of being brought into a whole new family. You get new brothers and sisters. You get to be a part of something much bigger than yourself. And as I've been praying through this text throughout the week and really trying to figure out what is what is the way to, to sort of bring this message in for a landing? I mean, there's the obvious. We could take an offering right now. <laughs> Give everything you've got. Let's go. But that's not what Jesus is up to today. I feel like he keeps pointing me back to the importance of belonging to Jesus' family 
and discovering that being a part of God's family really is a hundredfold over what it is that we've walked away from. I, I keep thinking about some of my friends who have sacrificed significantly to, to live out a radical obedience and discipleship to Jesus. I keep thinking about my good friend Liz, who led worship this morning, and it was, it was I mean, it was juicy. Worship was good today. And, and Liz, just a few months ago, laid down a, a career so that she could take a job that has less financial opportunity than what she had before because she felt the call of God on her life to serve the youth, not only of this church, but of our city. And I just see the way that God is breaking through in her heart, and he's bringing forth a, like just a, a return of joy, celebration, and honestly seeing the fruit of young lives being transformed slowly by Jesus. I keep thinking about my friend Jeff, who decided to take an early retirement um, uh, from his career and, and has sacrificed uh, what could be a very comfortable life, also that he could radically follow Jesus with the years that he has left, where he is at prayer at 6 a.m. every single day without fail, leading us, crying out to God from the deepest parts of his heart and declaring, with, the, with whatever years I have left, home stretch, I'm sprinting. I am not gonna go slow, I'm sprinting. When we surrender the things of this world, we discover abundant joy in being followers of Jesus. When we, dis when we let go of what is in our hands, we discover that Jesus fills our hands with things that we never could have imagined. And especially, he brings us into the family. And it's in the context of community, belonging to the body of Christ, that the things that tend to creep up into the center of our lives are exposed by a loving check from a brother or sister. We get to be Jesus to each other. We actually have the privilege of humbly coming to each other and saying, one thing you lack. Hey, there's something that I notice you're holding on to. And rather than feeling threatened by it, we can trust that we are all in this together. We are going on a journey together. I love the language of our friends from Van City Church, the church that meets in this building in the evenings on Sundays. Their vision statement that we are a family learning what it means to practice the way of Jesus together in Vancouver. I'm going to steal that just for this week. That's what it means to belong to God's family, to practice the way of Jesus together. And that is true gain. That is what this rich young man was being invited to. And it's what we are being invited to again today. You don't want to mislive. You want your life to count for something. You want to live the life of the age to come. And the paradox is you only find that true life in surrender. It's life in relationship with Jesus and his people. It's a life of freedom from the intoxication of wealth and every other snare of the world. So the question I want to leave us with today, what do you need to dethrone so that Jesus can take his place at the center of your heart? What is occupying a God space for you? 
in letting go that you will discover that you end up gaining everything that you need. And then finally, what steps will you take for greater connection with the body of Christ? How can you intentionally invite other people into your life so that those who would normally just be acquaintances can be your brothers and sisters? Amen?